0: All right, Wingfoot Church, time for one last bonus episode in our Untangling Jesus series. Uh, we have covered every chapter in the, the letter to the First Corinthians, uh, except for chapter 16, the very last chapter in the book. So as we're closing out the series, I just got this angst that we can't uh, close out the series without taking a little bit of time to at least take a look at uh, First Corinthians chapter 16 for a couple minutes, because after all, it's God's word. Uh, Paul included it the first Corinthians would have read it Uh, and sometimes you know you read through the New Testament letters and you get to the last chapter the last half chapter and it's just kind of like lists of names and greetings and it's like some administrative stuff and uh, and it can be easy to kind of pass on those things and say well it's just uh, you know it's just details Uh, but there's actually some pretty cool stuff in first Corinthians 16 I just want to take a couple minutes uh, and talk about because if you really when you read First Corinthians 16, which I'm going to read it in its whole in just a second, uh, you get a sense of the personal interconnectedness of the early church. Uh, they really were in it together, uh, and they knew what was going on in each other's lives and each other's worlds. And so I think there's some some things that we can definitely take from uh, the co- kind of the concluding chapter of First Corinthians. Uh, so I'm going to just read through this. We've we've taken the time to read through every chapter. Uh, in this book so far. So I just want to give it a moment uh, to actually listen to the words of Scripture here in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, and then just talk about a couple of things that we can learn uh, from Paul's concluding thoughts. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 16 uh, in the ESV. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So in this kind of final concluding part of uh, the letter, you really kind of get a sense that this is a letter. Right? And I, one of the things that's easy to kind of do as you look at 1 Corinthians as a whole is it, it becomes uh, about these big ideas. We've talked about these big ideas. we talked about the idea of leadership, the big idea of community, the big idea of sexuality and, and spirituality and conflict and unity and diversity and, and tongues and prophecy. And, and all these things can become really big ideas. Uh, But at the end of the letter, you come back to this reality that Paul is talking to people, like real people in a real context and real history uh, who are trying to follow Jesus in the reality of their everyday lives. And Paul knows these people. He has spent time with these people uh, and he wants all these ideas to not just be ideas, but to really lay out and play out in the everyday stuff of their lives. And so in these uh, last few words that he has for them, I think uh, we really see this interconnectedness and the interpersonal nature of this young church. And I just want to kind of explore three ways that we see that in this passage, uh, that the church really, uh, not just in Corinth, but really the church uh, across this movement that is now only probably about 20 years old, uh, is connected, is concerned, and is, is just personal. Uh, So you really kind of see that in in Paul's instructions in three ways. The first way is is just in generosity. Paul turns kind of in chapter 16, verse 1, now concerning the collection of the saints. He's he's done this with huge things. He's talked about now concerning uh, your body and concerning uh, tongues and concerning prophecy. And now he turns to this thing uh, about money and and how the early church was generous. Now, uh, just kind of a fun fact, this is the first time in any kind of New Testament records that we have uh, any indication of the church meeting on Sundays. Right? So Paul says on the first day of the week, uh, it's the first record that we have that, that Christians were gathering uh, on Sundays for worship, for community, uh, and for the teaching of God's word. Uh, and Paul says, hey, look, uh, I, as I'm traveling, one of the things that he was doing is he was collecting, uh, he was collecting funds. And as he would go throughout the region, uh, he would redistribute that money. He would help churches that were struggling. He would give uh, to churches that were going through a famine. Uh, In fact, at this time, one of the the main uh, places where Christians were struggling was in Jerusalem, and so Paul is collecting money from uh, these churches. And as he travels throughout this space, uh, right, he is uh, he is sharing it. He's spreading it around, Uh, and that's why you get the sense in verse three that Paul says he talks about this letter of accreditation. You got to remember there there wasn't any Venmo or PayPal or or even just a good mail service, right? So the only way to really share uh, what you had uh, was by giving it to someone that you trusted. And so Paul says, hey, look, I'll I'll submit to your process of transparency. Uh, I'll I'll follow your people that you want to trust. Like there's this transparency and this openness uh, around issues of money and sharing and generosity in the early early church. If you fast forward in the second Corinthians, which is Paul's actually Paul's third letter to the Corinthians, uh, it's a whole other story. But in uh, in Second Corinthians, Paul picks up this uh, the same issue in Second Corinthians chapter eight, and he really helps us see how the early Christians thought about money and generosity in the in that context. Uh, in Second Corinthians chapter eight, uh, Paul says this: He says, "I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, uh, this is verse fourteen: Your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness." As it is written, whatever, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered litter, little had no lack. Uh, and so one of the things we see in, in Paul's teaching here in, in 1 Corinthians 16, and then following in Second Corinthians, is that the church really understood that like whatever access they had, uh, however much it was, wherever it came from, they really saw that as uh, a sign and symbol of God's providing for the community. And uh, so Paul uses this picture of a matter of fairness. He says, "Look, if God's given you more than you need, uh, the purpose of that is not to hoard it away or 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 buy nice new things. The purpose of that is actually for the sake of other people, other people in the church, and maybe your church is well off in your community, but there, uh, the larger family of Jesus, there's people who are suffering or struggling." Uh, and so I think one of the things we take from that, right, is that uh, how the early church thought about money and possessions is very different than how we tend to think about money and possessions. Uh, We tend to think about it as a very private, very personal, very individual kind of thing, right? If I have uh, a lot left over, I can kind of splurge. I can choose to do what I want with that, and I'll I'll kind of give my percentage uh, to to the church organization. Uh, But for the most part, it's mine to decide what to do with. But Paul and the early church, they they really saw money and possessions as like, if you have more than you need. Uh, then it is your responsibility, uh, it is your calling as a follower of Jesus to share that with those who don't. And in fact, that is why God has given you uh, more than you need, because he's providing for his church through you. Right? And so I think it's a it's a challenge for us to think about our connectedness in the church, right? and our how we think about money, this private thing, to say, uh, you know, we just kind of came to the end of uh, a year, and I don't know how you do your your money or your budgeting at home, but you know, for us, uh, our our money and our budgeting, we, we kind of think look at it at an annual level to say, in 2022, how has God provided? And so at the end of the year, when we have excess, uh, it's not just for me to say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go stockpile that away for a rainy day. There's wisdom in some of that, but also I think part of that is to say, if I have more than I need, uh, God's given that to me so that I can give to other people. And so you get this radical uh, rethinking of money and generosity in the church, that they were all connected uh, and they were willing to give so that uh, there might be fairness, right? There might be equality, might be uh, shared wealth and prosperity uh, in this church. And, and they saw that as God actually working uh, in and through them in the church. And so you get this kind of radical generosity that demonstrates their interconnectedness uh, right from the get-go. The second thing that we see as far as their interconnectedness uh, is this practice of hospitality. Right? Paul says in chapter 16, verse 5, he gives them their, their travel plans. right. And there's, some of this is just like an administrative thing, right? Because, you know, you couldn't just like post and say, hey, I'm going to be passing through Macedonia next week. He had to kind of anticipate his plans. Uh, but the early Christians practiced this hospitality uh, of welcoming people in, not just like, hey, crash on my couch overnight, but like, hey, build a home here in my place while you're in town. Uh, right? They didn't have Airbnbs, obviously. They didn't have, uh, there, there would be like hotel kinds of situations, but typically they were associated with immorality, uh, sexual immorality, prostitution, all these kinds of things. That it was just kind of a place that uh, if you wanted to be kind of a, uh, not attached to or associated with those things, you were kind of uh, dependent on someone providing hospitality for you. And so Paul says, look, I'm going to be coming through, and I hope to spend a winter with you. I hope to spend a whole a whole season with you, uh, but I'm, I'm looking to you to provide that kind of hospitality. Uh, even so much that uh, we see at the end of the letter, right, that hospitality was practiced even just on a regular weekly basis uh, by Aquila and Prisca, who opened up their house, and their house was the context and the place of ministry. The church gathered there. Uh, and so this sense of the belonging of my house, right, and my household and my uh, my home and my kitchen, these kinds of things were on the table and open uh, for this early church uh, as they sought to follow Jesus. Right. And so I think it's a, an invitation and a challenge for us to consider hey, how am I opening up my home? And how am I uh, sharing what I have and the space that I have uh, to make space for people, uh, to make a home for people who maybe need uh, some help or uh, just for the sake of the gospel and the spread of the ministry that. Uh, is in front of us, right? And so, uh, you know, and I think too, like sometimes that idea of hospitality, you know, uh, in your mind, you might think of Martha Stewart, uh, or maybe Joanna Gaines, right? Like that hospitality somehow has to be this large farmhouse table uh, with like an eight course spread and a nice fancy chandelier of the table. But but this is hospitality at its most practical, right? That It's simply a matter of making space, uh, of opening up a door and opening up a seat at the table for someone to come in and to uh, find a place to belong and be connected uh, to the community of Jesus, right? So don't allow uh, kind of our contemporary idea of hospitality with large farmhouse tables and chandeliers and, and a gigantic uh, living room or a gigantic dining room, right? Like, like if you live here in our neighborhood, like those things are hard to come by. Like the houses here uh, were designed for a different era, right? Where open concept wasn't a thing. So, so don't allow kind of our, our contemporary ideas of, uh, of kind of Instagrammable hospitality uh, to say, I can't do that. Well, you can. If God has, has provided a space for you, if he has provided uh, the ability for that for you to open up your door, then do that. And that is an essential practice of this early church uh, in their interconnectedness uh, as they follow Jesus together. The last thing that we see in this as far as the interconnectedness of this church uh, is this understanding of, of personal discipleship. And what I mean by personal discipleship is, is that being a follower of Jesus uh, requires uh, or really uh, demands that you be personally discipled uh, by other followers of Jesus. Right? That you uh, enter into this life following Jesus, and it brings you into a relationship with people uh, who are there to teach you, uh, who are there to model for you what Jesus is, who Jesus is and what Jesus does, uh, who are there to hold you accountable, uh, right? Like there's not really a sense of, uh, of you come to attend an event, but rather that you belong to a community. And so you see this as Paul names some people. He says, I'm sending Timothy to you. Uh, he's, and Timothy was was fairly young at this point. Uh, and Paul says, look, don't despise him. Right? Don't, don't look down on him because he's young. In fact, that's what Paul would say to Timothy later in the letter that he writes to him. Right? Listen to him as if he was me. Uh, he has this authority, and so uh, submit to that discipleship. You also get this picture of Stephanus. Uh, Stephanus was the first convert to the way of Jesus in Achaia, which is kind of the, the county or the state that Corinth is, the, is one of the large cities of. Uh, in fact, uh, kind of to bookend the whole thing, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh Paul lists Stephanus as one of the only people that he baptized, right? If you remember way back when there was that argument over whose baptism was better, and Paul says, Hey, Stephanus, I baptized him. I don't remember who else I baptized. Uh, but you get this picture that Stephanus, from that moment of conversion, uh Paul says he's devoted themselves, their household has devoted themselves to the cause of Jesus, uh, to building up the church. Uh, and that Paul says you should be subject to him. Or in other words, you should you should submit to him. You should listen to Him. You should seek to follow Him. Uh, you see, following Jesus uh, and this idea of being a disciple, uh, it, it's not, a, not first and foremost an idea kind of thing. It's like, I'm going to get some great concepts from a podcast. I'm going to get some great uh, uh, bullet points from a book. No, it, is, it is an entrance into a life of relationship in which other people are following Jesus, and, and we are then following them as they follow Jesus. Uh, and, as we progress in that journey of following Jesus, that it also then means that we're called to bring others along the way right that stephanus was the first convert in this whole region I mean, imagine being the only Christian in the city of Akron or the only Christian in Summit County right we we can't even wrap our minds around that because there's churches all over the place, but that meant that stephanus then joined Paul and stephanus became paul's disciple, but stephanus eventually grew in his discipleship and started discipling other people to the point where he has a family around him. He's got, he's got this church around him and this, this church along with Aquila and Prisca has now been built up as people personally discipled other people into the way of Jesus. And so I think that's an encouragement and challenges for us uh, to think about like, who am I, who am I discipling this year? Like, who am I investing in? Who am I, who am I being discipled by, right? What person uh, am I inviting to to teach me and to hold me accountable and to call me out on things and to and to monitor my life and to and to guide me in the way of Christ-likeness? But also then to say, as I'm doing that, uh, it's also the process of inviting other people in as well, of discipling other people, of raising other people up, right? And, and sometimes I think we overcomplicate this where we think, okay, I need... I need like a large discipleship program or, or give me the curriculum or give me the, the 52 questions and answers that I'm supposed to offer to people as part of discipleship. Uh, but think about how Stephanus probably started. Right? There weren't books written at this point. There weren't, uh, I mean, there's the Old Testament, but there wasn't like a discipleship curriculum, right? No one had discipleship conferences. And so what did he do? He probably just got to business engaging in the relationships that he had and simply inviting people in. Uh, First, inviting people in to come hear this poll guy talk about Jesus. Uh, And then, eventually, inviting people into community where they could follow Jesus with other people who are following Jesus. And so, don't overcomplicate what it means uh, to disciple someone. Uh, Each one of us can invite someone in our context, in our circle, at our work, in our our neighborhood, uh, to take one step closer to following Jesus. Uh, as they interact with others who follow Jesus, right? And they can grow and learn and understand um, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so this last interconnectedness, this idea of being personally discipled, uh, you know, as we started a new year, uh, and maybe there's goals that you have in mind, maybe there's some some things that you're trying to change. Uh, I think one of the most important questions that we can ask is this question of, of, who am I being discipled by? And who am I intentionally putting myself under so that I can be trained and equipped and challenged and encouraged to follow Jesus. But to not stop there and then to say, who am I going to intentionally invite into the way of Jesus this year? Who am I going to be around? Who am I going to pay attention to? Who am I going to ask questions of? To to use the acronym BLESS that we use a lot at Wingfoot Church, who am I going to be prayerfully present with? Uh, who am I going to ask questions with so I can listen to them? Uh, who am I going to share a meal with, invite in, or or go out with so I can uh, I can better understand them. we can have some good conversation over a meal or a drink. And then how am I going to serve? How can I serve them in, in their struggle or in their questions? In life? Uh, but then ultimately, how can I share something with them? How can I share Jesus with them? How can I share an invitation with them? And that's how we begin the journey of discipling people into the way of Jesus. So as we close First Corinthians uh, with chapter 16, we see this picture that the church is made up of people. It's not a church full of ideas. It's a church full of people uh, and people who are seeking to share their life with one another, to share the, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus with other people, and to live that out in the context of their of the community that they belong to through practices like generosity, uh, hospitality, and committing to this life of personal discipleship. And so I hope you'll make this coming year uh, something of the same, and to be committed to generosity and the things that God has given you. Uh, to open up your home, your calendar, uh, your time, your energy to invite someone in, uh, and to along the way then be discipled and disciple other people into the way of Jesus.